Welcome to Folkways, the Folklore of Britain and Ireland podcast. Hey, how are you doing? I've got something a little different for you today. So I sat down to chat with the Welsh folklore researcher Bethan Briggs Miller. We travelled to her childhood home in Tondee, Wales. We had a cup of tea with her and learned a bit more about some of the formative experiences that shaped her work. Enjoy tales of friendly afterlife figures, the not-so-friendly, and what these stories might mean in our relationship to a specific place. Enjoy. If the name Bethan Briggs Miller is ringing a bell, this will likely be due to her being one half of the Eerie Essex podcast, as well as her work on Spectre of the Sea, an immersive, beautiful show looking at Welsh coastal law. However, Bethan has also done stellar work documenting the folklore of a post-industrial Glamorgan, and it was this level of detail and commitment that inspired my chat with her. This is someone who really knows her stuff. As folklore researchers, we may often keep our own personal experiences at arm's length publicly. However, that is not the intention for this chat. So this is a uh, no Fs given frank discussion uh, with Bethan bravely and vividly recalling her childhood impressions of the house and land she grew up in. Uh, Firstly, this makes for a far more interesting conversation, but also because in folklore research, you'll regularly come up against this sentiment that strange goings-on are things of the past. They're the creations of confused, primitive peoples. Uh, The P-word there, primitive, is less used now. However, it's important to note that uh, the sentiment very much remains. These confused people who just haven't had the advantages that we've had. But what do we do when strange or otherworldly accounts appear in more modern times? And it's this question that leads me to be particularly interested in post-industrial accounts, which may jar against or contradict the socially acceptable beliefs du jour. Maybe we're not always as forthcoming as we might be in polite society. Here are the stiffening hills, here the rich cargo, congealed in the dark arteries, old veins that hold Glamorgan's blood. The midnight miner in the secret seams, limb, life, and bread. Mervyn Peak. The Mountains of Glamorgan. The mountains of Glamorgan look down towards the sea. Their song is clear as any bell, in melodies that sink and swell, and there they stand to sentinel, a land of mystery. The mountains of Glamorgan grow wondrous in the spring. 
Perhaps our dead folk gather there to bless their land in song and prayer, for every thicket, nook and lair is loud with whispering. When I have reached my journey's end and I am dead and free, I pray that God will let me go to wander with them to and fro along those singing hills I know that look towards the sea. Arthur Glenn Priest-Jones I travelled to Bethan's old family home in South Wales one bright, although extremely cold, spring morning. The villages I'd passed through had already left quite an impression on me, and I noted the particular quality of this genius loci, or spirit of the place. Ghosts of miners entwined with daffodils, liberally scattered across the verges. At last, I found myself outside a large, end-of-terrace brownstone building. I made my way past flower pots with cheerful blooms of pink and red towards my host, who was waiting for me at the door. Hello, my love. Would you like to come in? Here's a recording of our chat. Hey everyone, I am thrilled today to welcome to the show Bethan Briggs-Miller. If that name sounds familiar, uh, it might be because you know her from Eerie Essex. So why don't I hand over to Bethan so she can tell you a little bit more about her, herself and what she does. Hello, I'm equally excited to be on Folkways because I'm a big Ashley fan. I've been listening to this for many moons now. Uh, yeah, I um, co-host Eerie Essex and also Spectre of the Sea. I'm based in Essex, as Eerie Essex might suggest, but I still have a love of Welsh folklore and I flit between the two in my storytelling. So we are visiting Bethan in her native Wales. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the landscape uh, your house is within? So I grew up in South Wales in a tiny little village called Tondi, which is about halfway between Cardiff and Swansea on the coastal edge, as it were, the hinterland between the valleys and the coast. And it's a very, very beautiful area. There's a lot of old cottages, um, rugged sort of landscape where you could see the old mine shaft still and like the trees overgrowing some old industry, but very evident that it was very heavily industrialized and I, I, I'm absolutely convinced that that is what shaped the folklore of the area and that's what I found growing up that um, the area's past played a big role in the stories that were told. You, you went to a convent when you were growing <laughs> up. Um, yeah I um, when we moved from Abercantry which is near Tondee uh, I went to live in Porth Call for a while, which is on the coast, and I wasn't doing very well in school, so my granddad paid for me to go to private school where they had smaller classes, and there was just, I think a lot of, you know, I bless any teachers these days, I think it's about crowd control rather than teaching, there's so many, so many people in a class, and yeah, I went to a convent school, now, these were nice nuns, I know nuns have a bad rap, um, you know, when you see films like the Magdalene Sisters, where it's truly horrific. My nuns were more like the ones of Call the Midwife. You know, sort of down to earth, 
sort of, you know, more approachable and more sort of like community based. And they were lovely. And um, they were the Paul Clare sisters and they wore brown habits. And it was a very, very different school. We had to, our uniform was brown. We had blazers and boaters and we had to wear slippers inside. So we'd go in and change our shoes in the, um, it was an old manor house. There was uh, several manor houses on this land. And one was the prep school, one was the grammar school, one was the um, sixth form house. There's a whole house for the sixth form. and the convent, which was this massive, great big building that reminds me of the house of um, Practical Magic. It had that wonderful sort of, yeah, I know. It had that lovely sort of um, greenhouse that was built on the side of it overlooking the cliffs of the coast. And we'd spend our lunches sometimes. We'd just go and visit the nuns over there in the convent and they would just make us tea. It was it was such a lovely childhood. And... Um, yeah, so we had to go in, change our shoes, get into slippers, and it's weird. I think you don't expect someone to be so involved with the supernatural and paranormal to have such a Catholic upbringing, but um, they were actually quite open-minded. They were Irish nuns, so they, you know, no matter what, you know, religious beliefs, they probably had all these, you know, ingrained folklore and, like, superstitions, and... um Oh, they were just lovely. And there was one nun, I, I always remember, Sister Christina. We used to get so excited if she took um, mass because she'd get out a guitar and through the medium of song, teach us about sex and um, the birds and the bees. And it was so funny. And she was just, it was like, imagine like sort of like, you know, um, the Von Trapps <laughs> sat around and just learning like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was... Um, before I moved to Tondi, I went back into sort of mainstream school. I've watched um, a fascinating lecture that uh, Bethan gave about Glamorgan and the industrial landscape. And I feel that before we zoom in on some of Bethan's stories, it might be helpful to give a bit of context to this area. So a lot of the industry in this area had a very high mortality rate. We're talking um, ironworks, mines, coal mines, um, sawmills, and just railway embankments. In Everything in the area had the families waiting at home for an inevitable siren that would go off, uh, signalling that something awful had happened. And this was very often. And... The house I grew up in in particular was connected to the ironworks in the village and it was a very, very dangerous profession. We were talking about molten metal in a time before health and safety when even children and elderly people, you know, there wasn't really an age start or stop. You you worked your entire life there once you could literally stand up practically. And the actual people who lived in my house, I could even trace their... Um, their careers that were connected very heavily with the ironworks and children would have been killed there there would have been older people who would have been killed there were 11 people living in my two up and two down house at one point and it had a very dark past and a lot of tragedy that happened there but i mean my house wasn't an anomaly that was the entire area that was how life was in those days and it's very hard to imagine these days we go we um leave work for work in the morning for nine o'clock we come home at five 
kids go off to school, come home at half three. It's a very different world to it was then. I mean, I don't go off to work fearing that I might get um, a call or the head of the industry coming to my house telling me that something horrific had happened. I, it's very hard to imagine what life would have been like then. So when I um, when I finished uni, one of the little sort of like um, volunteering jobs I did before I got a job was updating the database at the local archive on deaths, marriages and births. And I spent a, lo a lot of time on deaths and my own house popped up once where um, two children who lived in my house had been cleaning out the coke ovens across the way. They'd forgotten they were in there and shut them and turned them on. I think you can guess what happened there. There had been um, a little boy who had run across the road and got trampled by a cart outside the house. There had been a woman who lived there who was going across the way to the ironworks to drop off some lunch to her husband and a stray cart had come loose and flattened her. And I don't mean that, I, like you know, as a turn of phrase, literally. So this was like an everyday, you know, h horror was on the horizon every day. And that's just my house. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about your house specifically, because I think first putting it in the landscape of the industrial uh, area at large is helpful. But can you talk to us a bit about your experience growing up in this particular house? Hmm. So we moved to this cottage in... I think it was about 1997, 1998, so I would have been about 11, showing my age there. And um, it wasn't a slow burn on, like, you know, you hear a lot of stories where people move in and there's a slight thing that happens and it all builds up. Well, a lot of the activity started on day one. Uh, we moved in and my mum was in the kitchen and she was unpacking boxes and... Uh, she turned around and there was a gentleman in a very tall hat stood behind her, clear as day. And it was for a split second, but it wasn't like a wispy ghost or anything. It was a very tangible, um, solid figure. And later that day, I saw a lady in a green dress stood by the fireplace. We all saw a small boy stood at the top of the staircase. Uh, throughout the following weeks, we were passed on the stairs. We were passed in the passageways by people who were just going about almost like a time slip we were just running alongside this other timeline um we were overlapping and sometimes you felt like you were actually wit like sort of witnessing each other or acknowledging each other but it was very busy it wasn't a quiet paranormal start it was quite a bustling uh ghostly occurrence which i know is quite odd for a lot of cases i mean i never got a bad sense from a lot of them uh, there was always a sort of like a they were connected to the house because they loved the house so if we ever did any work in the house they would appear almost like they were checking in like 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 if I did if I passed over you or even living you'd like to go back to your old house you like to go back to where you grew up there's something very nostalgic and I don't know why nostalgia should, should stop after death I think a lot of them visit um, to see what is happening and some of the times, as I said, it felt a little bit like stone tape theory, where the, the very um, fabric of the building replays what's happened in the past. Um, I don't know if any of them were connected. Uh, through looking at records and looking at old photographs, 
Uh, I have noticed um, the lady in the green dress who liked to stand near the fireplace was a lady called Mrs Mullins and uh, a lot of the neighbours' parents knew who she was and they said that's where she liked to stand. She liked to stand there when people came around and there was never a very... It was a very sort of warm feeling. Uh, It was a very happy home. Did you have a sense that um, any of these people could see you and your family? Now and again, yes. There would be like a shocked uh, exchange. Like we would be, I would be shocked that I saw someone. Like there was, um, I was walking from the kitchen to the living room, and there was like a sort of like little tiny room between the two of them, and that's where we had all the bookcases. And I was coming from the kitchen one day to the living room. And there was a gentleman who was looking at my dad's books. And I saw his hand just reaching up to pull one of the books off the shelf. And he looked around and we caught each other at the briefest of moments. And we looked each other dead in the eye and we both looked like, holy crap. And, and then it, he, he went and I went on my way. And because it was so real, it wasn't an obvious ghost. I took about 10 steps before I realized that was odd. It was so real that it didn't strike me at first. It was a ghost. It's like, oh, that's odd to see someone in the house. Oh, there shouldn't be someone in the house. And that's how a lot of the ghosts were. It wasn't, it wasn't very sort of woman in black or anything like that. It was a very sort of like two seconds later. Oh, that's not right. Oh. Did you have a sense that they were surprised to see you too? Definitely, definitely. And that went on for a long time. I mean. It became almost part of the fabric of the house. There would be people in there. Neighbours would come in and say, oh, who was that person stood in the corner? And you'd have to explain there wasn't anyone stood in the corner. That was just another guest of the house. So what did these people look like? I mean, um, how could you tell that they didn't belong here? The dress. Uh, The gentleman who appeared in the kitchen had a very tall I think it says called a stover hat very very tall sort of like a an oversized uh, top hat that a lot of the um, iron worker foreman would have worn and there was a foreman who used to live in the house and the lady by the um, fireplace wore a very long green dress very sort of Victorian sort of style uh, the children used to see running around especially the little boy at the top of the stairs in very old um, sort of clothes and there was also animals and there was we found out later that um, the staircase as it was used to run through the middle of the house not the side of the house it was something that was done in the 50s and you'd often see someone walking up the middle walking in midair going upwards and it wasn't until afterwards you realized that's where the original staircase would have been and they would have been in very old clothes you could see like a swish of the skirt or like sort of hobnail boots um, it was very clear that they they weren't of our time and we, we, we became used to them in the end. And it, as I say, it all felt very warm and it didn't feel very threatening at all. I mean, apart from that room. And you know the room, I mean. You'll have noticed Bethan's experiences primarily seem to revolve around the dead so far. So today... We really lack a meaningful context to place such experiences within. As example, if you look to modern pop culture, you'll see this topic being handled in um, 
cringy ghost hunting shows, I know you know the ones, where people like Zach Baggins of Ghost Adventures, no offence, he attempts to start fights with supposed apparitions. I recall shots of him uh, brawling with thin air. (laughs) Or um, my personal favourite, which is where he rounds up individual members of his crew and he locks them up in solitary confinement in these small dark spaces that they can't get out of under the premise that only then will the ghost communicate with them uh, which isn't really anything more than just abuse in the workplace I did just want to pause here however and say that this next account from Bethan is genuinely a little creepy I say this just to give a warning if you're finding yourself in a slightly sensitive mood as we all find ourselves in from time to time or I know it perhaps it's 3am and you're struggling to get to sleep no it's uh it's not the nanny state it's the nanny state the nan- I'm just giving you a warning uh do with this what you will it's like if the others were visitors this was a parasite and it stayed in that room and it altered the entire room like the rest of the house felt warm um there was a normality about it you know you never walked into a room and thought hey up um however this room um you would like there was like a, a an unseen wall as soon as you walked through the doorway and walked over that threshold everything changed the temperature, the gravity, the the feel, the texture of the air. It was like walking onto an alien planet. And I can't tell you how many mechanics, how many plumbers, how many people we had out to see what was wrong with that room. Why was it always so cold? Why was it damp? Why did it feel so bad in there? Was there like carbon monoxide or something? We ruled everything out. I mean, my, my dad's very skeptical so he never once thought oh this is this is paranormal so he tried everything and called on everybody to try and find out what was wrong but as soon as you walked in that room you felt a little part of you sort of back away it's like even if you're 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 like sort of like sense of self-preservation that little part of you that's fright or flight would immediately kick off there was something not right in that room and it was down to the smiling man so is this your personal bedroom? It was. Well, I had two rooms. Being an only child, I had... Uh, they were very small rooms, so I had a very small bedroom. Um, there was just enough room really for a bed and a wardrobe, but I was uh, given the second room, uh, which had uh, a little sofa, um, some bookcases where I put all my videos. We're talking VHS days here. And uh, a television, and that's where I hung out. And that's where I brought my friends around. That's where I sat and watched films and read and did my homework. So I spent a lot of time in that room. And I think, you know, when you hear a lot of ghost stories where people say, why didn't you leave? You, it's amazing what you'll get used to uh, if it's your home. And I got used to the evil in that room, which must sound very weird. And it wasn't just the feeling of the room. It wasn't just the atmosphere, but there was definitely a singular presence in there that would now and again make itself known and it didn't start straight away it was just that feeling in the room but as time went on it sort of gathered itself and I did eventually see it one day I think the longer I stayed in that room the longer it got um, something 
I mean, it, typical sort of poltergeist story. I was a teenager. I was a very boring teenager. Um, but still, it was that sort of time where you hear a lot of like Enfield or Battersea or the Pontefract ghost. There's always a, a teenager at the uh, heart of it all. The poltergeist seems to gain power from that. It was the perfect storm, as it were. Perhaps if I had been a bit more rebellious and a bit more obnoxious, it might have got more power, but it must have been starving, bless it. I was so boring. But after a while, I mean, I got very ill. Um, it's when I, now looking back, I know I've got a health condition. And it's only in the last few years that it's really become recognisable in the medical community. And it's Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Whereas... I, I suppose during uh, teenage years, the hormone changes, it, that's when everything sort of kicked off for me, um, health problem-wise. And I, I was in a lot of pain, I had a lot of fatigue, I was ill a lot, and I spent a lot of time in that room. And I always got the feeling that whatever it was in there, any little disturbance it made, any sort of, even a slight fright or confusion, it fed off it. So for example, I would leave the room and come back minutes later and find nearly everything in the room turned upside down. So vases, cups, glasses, videos, picture frames, they'd all be turned upside down. I mean, there was no way on earth anybody could have done it. I didn't have any siblings to play a prank on me. I had an 80-year-old grandmother who, bless her, wouldn't have had, even if she had the inclination, wouldn't have had the capacity to do that. And I would find that things were thrown on the floor. Um, I would perhaps fall asleep in that room and wake up with scratches over me. Uh, the sofa in there would sometimes turn into a sofa bed. I would sleep in there and something would get into bed with me. I would physically feel it get into bed. The weight of it would sort of make that half of the uh, bed go down. I would freeze. Not, I could have moved, but I was just too scared to move. I was fully awake and witnessing whatever it was and there was one particular time I was very ill and I didn't have a temperature and I wasn't on any strong painkillers so I've, I've, I've tried in my mind to come up with explanations of what I saw and I can't I can't and I was lying on the sofa I was watching TV I reached over for a remote that was on the telly and as I moved back I felt this hair graze my face and when I looked up there was this smiling figure grimacing I mean not naturally I it it was like something out of a nightmare and it was leaning over me so close to my face that I could feel the hair from its head like brushing against my face and I screamed and ran out of the room and it was, I could understand why perhaps why my parents didn't believe me at first, whether they believed me or not. I suppose you don't want to feed into that. You don't want to say, yes, I believe you. You go, oh no, I'm sure it's nothing, it's nothing. You know, But this happened again and again and it started having multiple witnesses. When you talk about seeing the smiling figure looming over you, again, I, I can't help but wonder what, what did it look like? Did it look uh, as solid as you and I? Or was it something that you sensed? Was there? Could you describe it to someone who wasn't there? It was very solid. But 
it seemed to affect the region around it. So itself was solid, but it seemed to have a gravity around it. It was like it was reaching from some somewhere else and the whole room would go dark, but I would see it. And then everything would go back to normal. And I would just see the grin, almost like the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. The grin would remain and that would be the last thing to go. And I was the only one that saw it until, and I didn't tell my friend this because at this point I was wondering, was I ill? Did I have a temperature? Was I um, sort of imagining it? And it stayed in that room apart from nights like Halloween. When it got towards um, Halloween, the whole house seemed to change. And a friend of mine came over one night and we were watching a film. I mean, I remember telling you about this, Ashley. You remember the blockbuster days? You know, you go down on a Saturday night yeah, you go. You would go and rent out a film. You would feel super proud of yourself if you got one that was an age restriction above what you were. We would get a Chinese and we, you know, that was our Saturday night. My mum and dad would go out with their mum and dad and they'd go out for the pub and then we'd just stay in and just have a laugh. And on this occasion, we did get a comedy. I remember it, was, I can't remember which film, but I remember it was a comedy. It might have been Dumb and Dumber, something, you know, utterly silly so we weren't even in that space where we were thinking of horror or anything you know creepy and we were laughing and I, I can't remember what we were laughing about but it was a proper belly laugh and you know where you can't even like breathe that sort of laugh and we both at the same time looked in the center of the room and screamed I mean shrieked I felt my heart fall out my ass and we ran out the room we ran into the kitchen and I saw my friend Zoe's face and it was grey. I was feeling sick and it was, and we both said to each other, what did you see? And we both saw the same thing. A face appeared in the middle of the room, grinning at us. And it was the grinning man. It was Smiler. And he, for some reason, had come out of my room and was down there with us that night. And the dog was going mad. It didn't like what was in the room. The whole room had become the same atmosphere as that room for one night. It affected every, everything where it went. And then it was consigned back to that room again. And now and again it would come out. But it was mainly in that room. But that is, for me, having that multiple witness really made me think this is something real here. I guess my question would be, did you feel that it was linked to the house? Because this seemed to be attached to a particular room. So what are your thoughts on why it was still lingering around here in, in the late 90s? Well, ironically, that room was the youngest room in the house. It wasn't even an old part of the house. It was a, an add-on. Um, so the other entities seemed to be fixed to the older part of the house. And there was one occasion where, same friend, uh, Zoe, we were in that room and... We decided to do a Ouija board, which I know is, you know, lasting you. Bethan! I know. Damn it. I know, I know. I've been told off by my mum since then. But don't worry, we ne didn't actually get to do it because we set it all out. We had all the ripped bits of paper with the alphabet and on and yes and no and goodbye and, you know, the whole shebang. And we had the glass upside down on the table. And before we were reaching for it. And before our fingers touched it, it flew off the table and smashed. And there was a distinct feeling that something in the room was going, no, no, you do not want to 
contact this thing. And because it only stayed in that room, and this is purely going on instinct and how I felt, I feel as if everything else in the house was there to protect people from it. It was consigned to that room for a reason. I mean, looking back at the records of the house, there was a preacher who lived in that house. So there was someone who was very spiritual and very religious that used to live there. And his whole family died in horrific ways. So, I mean, we had this person living in the house who was in a turmoil, um, but perhaps had a good influence as well as invited something in. I don't know. I th Personally, I think that was the key moment. I think there was someone there who... You hear a lot of stories about people who are very religious and very holy becoming a target for such entities. But I think it or he was also a key in what protected the house. It was like a sort of balance. And now and again, that balance went out of whack. And I think that happened a lot in the community. So you had some um, previous occupants ask your family how you were getting on. Is that right? Would you like to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that was one New Year's Eve. We were at the pub in the next village. And it was a really lovely pub, like, you know, proper community. People would come from all around and sort of like just gather around the fireplace. And uh, everyone knew each other, even if it was like, you know, different generations. And I remember we were there one night and... We were sat on the sofas in the corner and this uh, family came up to us and this lady said, oh, hi, you know, do you remember me? And my mum and dad were like, oh, yeah, oh, this is the lady we bought the house off, Bethan. And I was like, oh, cool. And we were chatting away for a while. And then it was like they all looked at each other as if unsure whether to say what they were about to say. But they said rather sheepishly, how are you getting on with that back room? And we knew exactly what room they meant. And apparently, um, that was their sort of spare room where their grandson used to come and stay. And they would find him outside the door in the morning because he didn't like the smiling man. So, Bethan was telling me about this at the pub last week, a small village pub. And the past couple of nights I've been... Cause, you know, when you're out in public and you're having a laugh and a drink, you're like, oh, you know, this is very interesting. <laughs> and then when you're home um, and the lights are off, it's a different story. So, um, Well, you say that, but every time I started talking about it, something in the pub went wrong. Someone dropped some glasses. The dog would bark at us. Someone fell off the chair. Someone's walking stick on, went on the floor every time you mentioned Smiler. So I was thinking a bit about how we opened this chat which was talking about the surrounding area and you mentioned the stone tape theory earlier which I wanted to bookmark and I was thinking what do we do with landscapes for example like Tondi where there's been a lot of tragedy uh, a lot of a lot of death how do we interact with these landscapes do we say well um, you know this is excuse me, this is kind of a problem area and we'll leave it. Or is there a way that we can deal with it in a more meaningful way? And I'm not putting Bethan on the spot here because I'd really like to pose this as a question um, to my listeners as well. Because the stone tape theory, it's this idea that the, 
The landscape itself, or indeed structures, contain a memory, like a tape that's looping. And is it that it's destined to loop indefinitely and we can occasionally like watch it like watching a, a film on a screen? Um, or in some way can we affect this loop? I, well, to be honest, I, I don't know if I subscribe to Stone Tape anyway. I think it's more of a time slip. I don't think it's anything to do with the makeup of the building. I think it's more vibration of frequency and time is a construct that we have invented um, to make sense of things. But I think things are can be on a loop and crossover dimensions. There's a lot we don't understand, but I think I, as Tesla said, everything in this universe relies on frequency and vibration. And I think now and again, we tune into that. We are in the right frame of mind or there's the right atmosphere there's something that causes that loop to loop back around again which is why you get people who like you know turn up in places and see a building that was there that wasn't there they might hear a dogfight overhead when you know the war is long gone things like that and especially in places where there was such a high as i said mortality rate and grieve you know constant grieving but also i find it very interesting that um especially in Tondi, there was a lot of, um, you know, digging into the foundations of the Earth. I mean, of all the places on Earth, yeah, I know we're trying to get to the Moon, we're trying to get to Mars, and there's, you know, the whole thing with, we don't understand the deep sea, but to me, the subterranean Britain is like another world. The amount of folklore about what happens beneath the surface is fascinating. You only have to look up the road to Morver and Park Slip and all the all these mining communities that had stories of creatures and anomalies that happened as soon as you went beneath the surface. I mean, in 1902 and 1908, the, the early 1900s in Tondi, there was a spectre that haunted the village and it came from one of the mines. It came from a mine in Anasaudra, but... And this wasn't just a regular sort of wispy ghost. This was some, an entity that strangled people. I mean, the description of it will haunt me. This cadaverous figure that would glide towards this person, whoever witnessed it, and grab them by the throat and throttle them. And would only let go if they were strong enough to beat it away. And so many people saw it. And there was even bands of men and boys who went around the village with I mean it's like you know pitchforks and torches it was a proper like sort of like medieval <laughs> scene like hunting this thing down and this all came from a mine and it, it stuck with people I mean even now if you go on social media and look there are people whose grandparents still talked about it there were people that said oh I think I've seen something similar down this path and there are still um i used to walk to school past the um bridge where it happened i used to walk past the marsh where the uh, buildings of the mine were sinking into it it was proper it looked like another world and i think we just we we live alongside these things and part of making our peace with it is remembering these stories and acknowledging these stories and passing them on I mean, especially with things that are so horrific, like like the Morpha pit disaster up the road, like the things that happened in the village. I mean, it wasn't actually that long ago, and we're talking about 100 years. That's a blink of an eye in the 
in the whole world. And I think sharing these stories and keeping them going keeps the blood flowing in the area. It keeps memory going. And I think it's that a community's memory makes its peace with the land. I hope you enjoyed the first part of this chat with Welsh folklore researcher extraordinaire Bethan Briggs Miller. I especially liked Bethan's closing remarks about a community's memory making peace with the land. There's a potent point with many layers, and if we think about it in this way, we shouldn't want to forget these stories. Even, yeah, even those with a darker edge, they play an important role. The idea of scrubbing them clean or getting rid of them doesn't seem appropriate at all. We should expect the land to have a lot to say. Join me for part two next month, where we take a bit of a different tact. We find ourselves at twilight in a small fishing town in the marshes of Essex. And this time, we take a bit more of an upbeat approach as we think about the role that folklore plays, plus tips for spying cryptids, and how the madness of modernity need not stop us meaningfully connecting with the land directly around us. That chat is the important other side of the coin to today's conversation. We look forward to warmly welcoming you back then. Take care of yourself. You've been listening to Folkways, the Folklore of Britain and Ireland podcast, written and produced by myself, Ashley. Music by Big Big Sky. Find him on socials and streaming platforms at big.big.sky. Be sure to connect with the show on Instagram at Folkways Channel. Stay tuned for this month's Almanac, which will be coming up shortly. If you'd like to hear the almanac before anyone else, be sure to head to Folkway's YouTube channel, which you'll find linked in the show notes, where the almanac is uploaded as an individual video at the beginning of each month. If you'd like the Folkway's tree to grow and bear fruit, please consider watering its roots. This episode was made possible by the Friends of Folkway's, Friends are excellent humans who chip in to help me afford the books I buy for each episode. If you think preserving this work is a worthwhile endeavour, you can join the Friends from only £2 a month, in return receiving instrumental soundtracks, letters in the post and meditations. Sharing it with a pal or leaving a good rating wherever you're listening to this also helps the show to grow. Thank you. We're now about to tune into Folkways FM for June 2023's Almanac. The ship is currently moored somewhere near Creetown in southwest Scotland, where the crew have been enjoying trips inland to Galloway Forest Park and even apparently climbing up Merrick Mountain. So, without further ado, let's try and pick them up. Very welcome to June 2023's Almanac, where we muse over the heavens and the hedgerows for the coming weeks ahead. June from the goddess Juno, wife of Jupiter and queen of the gods, a counterpart of the Greek Hera, 
Juno is goddess of marriage, childbirth and fertility. The word June appears to have the same root meaning as Eunius or Eventus, youth, which is related to words like juvenile and rejuvenate. Old English Aeroletha or first calm, uh, the second calm being July, the second Letha. Manx, Meansauri, Scots Gaelic, Intorquius, Irish, Mehev, Welsh, Mehevin, Cornish, Mees Methevin. The last three, as your twitching ears no doubt picked up, sharing a proto-Celtic root, Mehev, Mehevin, Methevin. Let's first open with a seasonally appropriate refrain from an English folk song regarding the cuckoo. The cuckoo is a pretty bird, she sings as she flies. She brings us good tidings and tells us no lies. She sucks the sweet flowers to make her voice clear, and she never sings cuckoo till summer draws near. After the opening, the song continues with a young woman, usually though sometimes a young man, complaining of the inconsistency of the opposite sex and the pain of losing in love. Verses such as Camel pretty maidens, wherever you be, don't trust in young soldiers to any degree. They'll kiss you and court you, poor girls to deceive. There's not one in twenty that poor girls can believe. There's also an Irish folk song that uses a similar tune and starts with verses extolling the beauty of Bun Cloudy, a town in County Wexford. And we find the third verse is the standard Cuckoo is a pretty bird. The song Streams of Bun Cloudy is sad and beautiful lyrically, and there's a fine recording from Luke Kelly of the Dubliners, which you'll find linked in the Almanac's show notes. I opened with thoughts of this nest-robbing bird this month, as it's an auditory symbol of the good weather, however it's considered unlucky to hear it after Midsummer's Day. Yes, we are now, I don't know how, but we are fast moving towards the longest day of the year. Can you feel the energy in the hedgerows ramping up as you charge past them on your lunch break? There's a freshness, a certain lighter shade of green that burns out and gets dustier as we move through the summer. So enjoy the next few weeks as we, yep, hurtle towards the sun's zenith. The Christian feast of St John, commonly known as Midsummer's Day on the 24th of June, occupies much the same relationship with the solar cycle as Christmas Day, it represents the end of a solstice, the period in which the sun ceases to move for a short period. In response to the swelling of light and heat, foliage is now at its fullest before the time of fruiting approaches. It's no wonder this peak buzzing of life force was seen as a somewhat magical time to ancient Europeans, and the not so ancient too, this life force is yours to tap into right now. In the 4th century Acts of the Martyr St. Vincent, there's a description of how the pagans of southwestern France celebrated a festival by rolling a flaming wheel downhill to a river. 
And over a thousand years later, a monk of Winchcombe on the edge of Gloucestershire referred again to the rolling of the wheel, but this time ascribed it to Midsummer's Eve, the evening before the Christian feast of St John the Baptist. So we've got a link here, wedding Midsummer to this strange fiery wheel. And in the 16th century, the Protestant writer Thomas Neogorgus described it in detail, suggesting that it was common all over wider northern Europe on this night. At this time of year, you may enjoy our sister show Folkways, two episodes on Midsummer, which you'll find linked in the show notes. If you woke up in Portishead, Bristol on the 1st of June, you saw the sunrise at 5am and set at 21.18, giving up chef's kiss day of over 16 hours there. Portrush, Northern Ireland, sunrise 4.54 and set at 21.55. And Perth, Scotland, sunrise 5.29 and set at 20.54. This month, you can uh, impress any friends you might be with by informing them in a sudden, authoritative fashion that June's moon is known as the mead or the horse moon. There's also the Anglo-Saxon flower moon, as well as the rose moon, uh, the last one being used across wider Europe. The moon will then be new again on Sunday, the 18th of June. The constellations of Cygnus, Hercules and Lyra dominate the night sky at the moment. For early risers this month, Saturn and Jupiter will grace the pre-dawn sky. Saturn rises at around 2am at the beginning of the month, followed by Jupiter at around 3.20ish. On the 21st, the solstice. Take a look at a nice conjunction of Venus and the crescent moon, positioned low in the evening sky. After sunset, watch them emerge as the sky grows dark. You might also be able to see Mars in the western sky. Now down to the hedgerows, there is lots of flowering this month. All the roses, I've been uh, watching the roses in my garden, tentatively peeking out over the past weeks, as well as yarrow, honeysuckle, red campion, goat's beard, bramble flowers, white bryony, and cottage garden and hedgerow favorites, those beautiful foxgloves. For foraging, June is the month of the elderflower, primarily a tree of scrub, wood edges and hedgerows. Famous for its use in elderflower wine, it is best picked ASAP. To look out for gooseberries, marsh samphire, hedge garlic, wild thyme and wild strawberries amongst others. In this month's Location Spotlight, we're highlighting a real hidden gem, Luxillian Valley in Cornwall. I used to live in Cornwall and I was recommended this valley by a local. This place is what I'd call a bit of a secret and even in the height of summer, you'll often only see a handful of other people the whole time you're there. 
The valley just north of St Austell is both a beautiful natural woodland and a fascinating heritage site. Its steep sides stretch for around two miles along the banks of the River Parr from Luxillian to St Blasey. The Cornish name for the valley is Glyn Gwernan, meaning Alder Tree Valley. This refers to the ancient broad-leafed woodland that is home to a range of wildlife, including over 40 species of fern and various other flora and fauna of conservation importance. Whilst there's little doubt as to the valley's natural beauty, what makes the place special are the decaying remains from when this was an important part of the Cornish mining industry. And even in the earliest days of Cornwall's mining, Luxillian was important as a source of wood for charcoal, which was used to smelt the locally mined tin and copper. Most of the industrial remains that are scattered throughout the valley are the work of Joseph Treffery, including the stunning viaduct with its enormous arches, which you can walk under or head to the top and cross over like a bridge as you marvel at this piece of 19th century engineering. Throughout the valley, you can also find the remains of the horse-drawn tram roads where carts loaded with stone, china clay, copper ore, lime and coal once ran. The rails are gone, but you can still see the lines of granite blocks that supported them. There's a slightly strange feeling walking along these old tracks. And it's this combination of the lush valley with these rusting ruins, which gives this place a certain atmosphere. Perhaps it's the relative quiet that now pervades compared to what it once would have sounded like here. I'm quite a sensory person and when I see these bits of machinery, my mind can easily conjure these bustling scenes this ground would have known not that long ago. There's also the element, as it were, of nature reclaiming a space. I don't say that with enjoyment as such, uh, rather neutrality. If you're interested in folklore, then you're interested by definition in the human story. Not just these empty remarks about how pretty a natural space might look, for example, with all those pesky humans out the way. It's a fact that this valley would have provided much-needed work and security for many local families. There's also a note, a bit of what we might call a vibe to this place. Certain locations seem to have rather strong personalities or uh, a presence, we might say. Luxillian Valley certainly has this. I won't say any more than this, but... I'll allow you to discover its particular personality for yourself if you find yourself in, literally, this neck of the woods. There are two small car parks at either end, um, but if you're on foot, which I might actually recommend more, you can enjoy a scenic train ride to Luxillian Village, and then you can make your way on foot to the start of the valley. Be sure to support the charming local village shop there where you can grab a coffee and also a map of the valley. Your assignment 
this month is to think about the upcoming sun's zenith, which we've discussed, and how you might want to mark it. Whether you focus on the solstice, the 21st, which falls midweek on a Wednesday, or the traditional midsummer, the 24th, which is the weekend. In our busy lives, it's very easy for other people's plans to somehow become our plans. Do you ever notice that? And before you know it, you've got no time left. So why not now get out your planner or your phone and think about cornering off a bit of time that particular week to mark midsummer from a walk with friends or planning to go somewhere solo that you've never been before. Um, even if you know nothing else permits, just waking up early to have a sunrise cup of coffee with the birds. Just start mulling over a plan to do something enjoyable under that midsummer sun. It's been said on both the Almanac and the Folkways show itself, but one of the best things you can do for your mind is to start actively engaging with the seasons. If you're not sure where to start, and uh, maybe that sounds a bit woolly, honestly, just head out on a stroll at these turning points of the year. Uh, bring a sausage roll, maybe a litre of orange squash, nothing fancy required. It makes me laugh, all these um, plastic shamans. I think that's a term that Fiona Edgar coined, so uh, credit to her there, it's a good one. These uh, folk often on Instagram, now offering all these obscenely expensive retreats suddenly. Have you noticed that? You basically pay absurd sums of cash for the uh, pleasure of their company for a few days. And I'm absolutely not saying there isn't value in spending time with like-minded others or being immersed in a particular spiritual or religious practice, certainly not. But perhaps you shouldn't have to remortgage your house to pay for it. Sometimes it feels like people's own innate spirituality is being sold back to them. Well, here's a bit of wisdom, and uh, baby, you can have this for free. You're a child of God. You are born of this soil, and you'll return back to it. This is your home. You belong here. You are connected to this land, and nobody can ever take this away from you. It is yours, this connection. It is yours you don't need to pay someone over the other side of the world hundreds or thousands of pounds to tell you this. It's in your blood, it's in your breath. If you want to feel connected to the land, in inverted commas, just start, start bowling around your own backyard. Talk to your own grandparents if they're still with you. And see if there's anything you can do to help your local environment. For example, almost every day I seem to be uh, picking up rubbish on my walks. That's a surefire way to start feeling connected with the land very quickly, I can tell you. Sorry if I'm being a bit salty. I had a bit of a rubbish day. Do you ever have those days where things back to back just go wrong in succession and quite big things? The last thing that went wrong is I was in town and my bank card stopped working. My first thought was, oh god, I've been defrauded and it's been blocked or something. So I called my bank and it was all fine, but it turned out the chip on the card had just stopped working. And this was an issue because I therefore couldn't get home and I really needed to get home. And it was at this, at this realisation 
I just started looking around me like, oh, okay, okay, what's going on? And then I said to myself, you're a child of God. You were born of this soil and you'll return back to it. This is your home. <laughs> Love you. Bye. Chippers, get the butter out. <laughs>